Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hardcore Finance Podcast. Uh, today, we have uh, the great pleasure of talking with Nick McCullum, who's the Director of Growth at Passive, uh, which is a company that I'm uh, really fascinated by. Uh, so, Nick, how is it going? It's going well. How are you doing? Doing really, really well. So uh, on this podcast, we're talking a lot about passive investing and investing in indexes. Uh, that's pretty much my um, my uh, favorite way of investing. Um, Alex, my co-host, he likes to pick stocks a little bit, but even most of his portfolio is passively invested. So very happy to hear uh, about passive. So what do you guys uh, do and what was the idea behind uh, launching the company? I think the best way to understand what Passive does as a company and what our mission statement is, is for you to understand, I guess, the problem that we're trying to solve. And if you think back to uh, the early days of Passive, the problem that our co-founder, Brendan Wood, had was that he was trying to manage his own retirement account. He was trying to manage his wife's retirement account. He was even trying to manage a couple education plans for his kids. And for each one of those investment accounts, he had a different asset allocation that he wanted the account to be invested in. Uh, due to the different you know time horizons for each account. And all of this became very tedious. He was managing it all in, in a big spreadsheet where he would put in how much he was contributing and it would kind of tell him how many shares of which different ETF he had to buy to stay on track. So lots of manual labor just in the data entry alone. And then even once the data was entered into that spreadsheet, he still had to go to his brokerage's uh, you know user interface and place all of his trades one by one. So it was overall a really time-consuming and tedious task. And that's kind of where the inspiration for Passive was introduced. The original prototype of Passive, Brendan wrote just as a simple Python script that eliminated the manual data entry component of that process. So it would read the holdings within his investment account and tell him what trades he needed to make. Now, after many years of development and, and a lot of you know elbow grease from the team, Passive is basically a platform that you can use to make it really simple and easy to manage your investment portfolio. The way that Passive works is you create a Passive account, you log into your Passive account, and you pair your Passive account to your brokerage account. Once your brokerage account has been paired to your Passive account, you set a target portfolio for that account. And that's just the mix of stocks and bonds and ETFs and other investments that you want to be invested in along with the target asset allocations. Uh, so once that's done, Passive allows you to rebalance with one click. We send the trades to your broker, the trades get executed, and we sent, they get sent back a trade confirmation. Once that all of that process is completed, you're able to just be notified by passive via email notifications whenever it's time for you to log in again and rebalance once more with that one-click trade functionality. So passive right now is basically a way for you to put uh, your your investment account on autopilot and build your own robo-advisor within an existing brokerage account. So yeah, that's kind of the high-level overview of how it works, and I'm happy to answer any specific questions that you have. Yeah, that's awesome. So I have tons of uh, tons of interesting points to uh, to ask about. But my first question would be like, do you guys give any advice on like what's the best portfolio, or is it purely something where I have to come and I have to say, you know, I want thirty percent tech, fifty percent S and P, and like you know twenty percent something else? And then the other question is about the rebalancing uh, rate. Like, do you give any recommendations on how often uh, things should be rebalanced? Yeah, so let's just like take those one by one, I suppose. Uh, in terms of recommendations, Passive is not, I guess, in the business of making of providing personalized investment advice. So in order to use our software to manage your investment portfolio, I suppose that you have to self-educate enough to know 
uh, what you actually want to be invested in. And I know that a lot of our users rely on model portfolios that are published by financial advisors or financial bloggers for that. So it's not a huge hurdle, but definitely something I guess that you should be made aware of if you're thinking about using passive. So to summarize, we don't actually select your investments for you. You have to select your investments and then we provide all of the tooling and infrastructure that you need to stay invested in that as close as possible over time. In terms of rebalancing frequency, the way that that mechanic actually works is through a metric that we call portfolio accuracy. So that basically measures how close your actual portfolio is to the target portfolio that you've specified inside of passive. So, you know, if you're a hundred percent portfolio accuracy, that means that you're precisely invested exactly in your target portfolio. If you're 0%, it means that you don't own any of your target portfolio. And then you know, there's a big spectrum in between of how accurate you could be based on where your holdings are compared to your target portfolio. The way that the rebalancing notifications are set up is that we have a metric inside of passive called the drift threshold. And that is basically a number that you're saying to passive, I want you guys to email me whenever my portfolio accuracy falls below this drift threshold. That drift threshold number is defaulted to 90%. So when someone creates an account, by default, they will get an email whenever their portfolio accuracy falls below 90%. But mm-hmm. it's highly configurable. And we have lots of investors who use that in different ways. I personally have my portfolio accuracy uh, set really high, I think 99%, just because I always want to make sure that any cash that hits my uh, brokerage account gets invested immediately and doesn't waste any time sitting on the sideline. Awesome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, I love that you're working on growth. I'm personally, I've been doing growth uh, for many years in Silicon Valley. And one of the really cool uh, parts of of the growth job is to like, keep looking for that product market fit with with different segments, and see like, you know, how do you position the product to different people? So what have like, I guess what what has like surprised you in the sense that you go and you try to tell people, hey, you know, this is a great way to invest your uh, your money. I guess you have like the, the cohort of users that are already doing this and then you just help them automate, in which case it's kind of a no brainer. It's like instead of me doing the work, um, you know, I get passive to like automatically do it for me. But like, have you had any conversations with uh, potential customers uh, where you had to try to basically tell them why this is a better way of investing and what what has the feedback been so far? So I guess in terms of the most surprising thing, which was your first question, um, I always thought, you know, I I wasn't a co-founder of Passive. I joined the team as, I guess, an early employee. And the thing that I guess has always surprised me is who our real competitors are. So a lot of people from the outside looking in think that we're competitive with like the robo-advisory space. But I don't really think that's the case at all because fundamentally we do different things. Robo-advisors are great for people who want a completely hands-off approach to investing. And they just say, here's my money and I want to fill out a questionnaire and you invest me in whatever you think is good. And I don't really want any input into that. Passive is for people who are a little more hands-on, I suppose, and who want really highly customizable solutions for how to passively invest their portfolios. So one of the great things about Passive is how configurable it is. And we have people who use it in all sorts of different ways with a lot of, you know, customization and a lot of specifications that you wouldn't be able to get at a robo-advisor. So I think our real competitors because of that and because of the highly like rules-based nature of the passive uh, platform, I think our main competitors are actually spreadsheets and, and not robo-advisors. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So do you have uh, many people? Like, w- what do you think is the size of the segment? If you look at all the retail investors, you probably have like, you know, people that don't care at all. They just like set up their 401k or whatever and never look at it. Then you have people who use robo advisors, uh, you know, like Wealthfront and all of these guys where it's like, you know, I want some intelligence behind it, but I don't really know what I'm doing. Then you have people who would love to use passive. It's like, oh, I, I know exactly what my mix is. And I just need to execute on it. And then you probably have like people that are even more sophisticated, which have like their own trading patterns um, between different stocks and stuff like that. So what do you have any notion of like how uh, the consumer universe divides between these four groups in terms of size? In terms of size, it's, it's really hard to say because it's really hard until people see the passive product for them to have a good understanding of whether or not they would use it, I think. So it's not a well-defined you know, product. It's not like asking someone, Hey, would you like, do you like Coke? And they can just immediately say yes or no. Cause they have so much familiarity with it. Uh, people really have to, I think, use passive to understand how valuable it is because it, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the ways that it helps you save time and money, maybe aren't things that you would immediately think of without having experience with it. I would say if I had to guess though, it would be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, you know, who would really benefit from using this. Um, and then in terms of like the different ways that people use passive, I would say, you know, there's kind of like three main uh, ways that people could use passive to manage or three main buckets, I guess, of sophistication. So on the end of the spectrum, that is the most simple. P- there's many people who use passive and kind of just want to invest in a one fund all in one ETF, something like Vigro, which basically is like an ETF that holds other ETFs and it has a certain asset allocation, maybe, for example, 80% stocks, 20% bonds, something like that. So they just invest in one ETF. And the reason why they would still use passive to do that is because of our cash notification system. So whenever they get dividends or whenever the new contributions hit their account, passive sends them emails so that they know they can log in and invest that money right away so that it doesn't waste any time sitting on the sideline. So that's like the most simple use case. At the middle of the spectrum, there's many investors who use passive to manage a portfolio of ETFs where let's say they want to be you know 25% in US stocks, 25% in uh, U.S. bonds, 25% in global stocks and 25% in global bonds. Passive would allow them to really make sure that they stick to that 25, 25, 25, 25 allocation and also notify them whenever cash is hitting their account to get invested right away. So that's kind of like the intermediate use case. At the really you know hardcore, sophisticated end of the spectrum, you could use passive to do like direct indexing. So let's say you want to own the S&P 500, but for whatever reason, you don't want to own it through something like the S&P 500 index ETF. Instead, you would prefer to own the actual stocks that are the constituents of the index. So to do that, you could actually use passive, put all of the 500 stocks within your target portfolio. And then maybe even just to add one more layer of additional sophistication, passive allows you to actually connect to multiple brokerages at once. So if you had some investments at TD Ameritrade and you had some other investments at Interactive Brokers, you could connect both of those brokerages to passive and it would provide a centralized dashboard for you to manage all of your investments in one place. And, you know, so basically what I'm trying to say is you could do direct S&P 500 indexing across multiple brokerages all in one place using the passive platform. Yeah, no, I think that's very exciting. Uh, We've been talking on this podcast um, for several episodes about the whole idea of looking at different sectors, right? So like, for example, you can say, okay, now that Biden uh, won the election, we kind of have an idea of like which sectors might benefit from the new policy and which sectors might get hurt. 
So it could be very interesting instead of just doing an S&P 500, like having all 500 stocks and just rebalance them, you can say, okay, I believe that these sectors will outperform these other sectors. So I want to like, you know, have a higher allocation to specific sectors or, um, you know, or even go long short. And so it's it's really cool that you guys have a platform that can do it uh, automatically because like I thought until now it would be uh, Python and like, uh, Google Sheet. Uh, do, do you guys see any interesting portfolios being built? Um, maybe like on an aggregate level, I know you probably can't share individual ones, but do you see any interesting usage patterns that uh, that could be interesting to our listeners? I've always been, I guess, surprised by how many people on the passive platform own individual stocks in, in, in large size, I suppose. So that's one interesting perspective. More broadly, in terms of what you said about sectors and I guess the ability to express a broad economic view in the marketplace. I think the the maturation of the ETF industry has really enabled investors to capture, uh, you know, exposure to different asset classes in ways that allow them to express an economic view in ways that were really hard to do before. So, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is because ETFs have gained so much popularity, there's basically an ETF for everything now. So if you think that cloud computing is going to be a, a fast growing segment, you can invest in a cloud computing ETF. If you think commodities are poised for a comeback, you could invest in a commodity ETF. If you think agriculture stocks are about to rip, you could buy an agriculture ETF. So the prevalence of ETFs and the way that you know we've just continued to niche down into more and more smaller segments of the market through new ETFs that are coming to market has really been a big um, you know tailwind for investors who want to express economic views through a highly customizable portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I've I've seen yeah I've seen crazy ETFs like long renewable energy plus short natural gas. You know, like you can these days you can really do everything uh, with ETFs. But I guess uh, it's cheaper probably to do it with passive, right? Like the fees are probably lower than um, the fees that the ETF charges. Is that kind of the main idea? Well, I think many people don't want to be in the business of actually expressing a you know a very specific economic view by means of um, you know, buying individual securities. So to, I guess, use an example I talked about earlier, if you think commodities are about to rip, the normal way to do that would be to play the commodities futures market. And that's kind of really hard to do for retail investors for a number of different reasons. And there's a lot of risk involved with that. So, I mean, if you hold a commodities futures contract until expiration, you actually have to accept delivery of those commodities. So if you own oil futures and you accidentally let that thing expire, well, you have to go pick up a couple thousand barrels of oil and that kind of sucks. (laughs) So, um, I think that if you do have economic views like that, using ETFs is in many cases or in the majority of cases, the best way to express your economic view because it's, it's low cost, it's, it's tax advantaged, it's high, highly liquid and kind of just an easy way to capture exposures to niche marketplaces. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's talk about uh, a criticism that I completely disagree with, but I'm really interesting to he- interested to hear like your thoughts on it. Uh, so this criticism of passive investing, right? And uh, maybe you've heard it in the past. Uh, from what I gather, it's something like it distorts the market, right? Because like if people just like invest in the S and P five hundred uh, on their four hundred one k. Uh, what what this causes is it causes like a big difference between the five hundred largest company and the 501 largest company, the 500th largest company is part of the S&P 500. And so it will get those automatic inflows. 
and the 501st one will not. And so then it creates like this, this complete idea of like capital misallocation. And like uh, a second version that I've heard of this criticism is like, oh, you look at the S&P 500, it's mostly driven by the top, like whatever, seven companies or the top 10 companies. And because the uh, inflows into that passive fund are rebalanced based on market cap, so the companies that have a larger share of the index also get a larger share of the uh, investment, that creates like a very unfair, basically, not unfair, but it creates a dynamic where like you want to push really hard for network effects because like the bigger you become, the bigger, the lower your cost of capital is which allows you to like, you know, buy up your competitors and become bigger and bigger, which people claim would not happen if, uh, you know, back in the 80s, people chose individual stocks one by one. And so you could make the case that, you know, you call your stockbroker and they could pitch you, oh, you know, this up and coming company that just IPO'd like last year uh, is very promising. And so you could put some of your retirement money in that company. So what are your thoughts uh, on that criticism? I would say like to many extents, it's, it's pretty accurate, but I think that we're not at a point in terms of passive investing market share where it's probably a huge problem yet. So I guess I'll address both both of the things I just said. The first point was that it's, it's valid to some extent. And I think if you just look at historical trends in the stock market, there is a noticeable bump whenever a company gets added to the S&P 500 because all of a sudden, however many trillions of dollars of assets under management have to buy that stock for the first time. So that makes sense on the surface. But at the same time, how what is the share of passive investing relative to all investing right now? I think it's around 50%. So half of all investing dollars are passive and the other half is active approximately, assuming that I have that number right. Now, the question is, and the big question is, what happens if that goes close to 100? There needs to be some active investors in the marketplace at all time, because those are basically the people who drive price discovery and try to assign fair values to securities. But if the share of active investors gets too small, then they would have a lot of opportunity for market manipulation because passive investors are going to mimic anything that they do. If you have enough sway in the marketplace to get a company added to the Russell 2000, you'll get a big Russell 2000 bump because all of these passive index funds have to buy it. If you can keep pushing that stock until it gets added to the S&P 500, it's the same thing. And that's not really trading based on fundamentals anymore. You're trading based on uh, you know, expectations investing or or based on sentiment or, or based, you know, to be honest with you on market manipulation. So it is something that I think passive investors should be aware of, but it's not a big risk, I don't think, for passive investors because one of the defining characteristics of a passive investing strategy is diversification. So if you're owning the S&P 500 index fund, you own 500 stocks, not one stock. So that, you know, any potential... Uh, bizarre distortions to the market that might impact a single stock are really diluted thanks to your diversification. If you own an index like the Russell 2000, well, now instead of 500 stocks, you have 2000 stocks and that diversification risk reduction effect becomes even more pronounced. Yeah, that makes sense. And like my answer to this criticism kind of from a first principles perspective is like to say, this is like any other arbitrage opportunity, right? Like every time people say, this is a market distortion, right? This should this this is something that doesn't like shouldn't exist at equilibrium. It's like okay, great. Then you can like have a special hedge fund that what they do is like they go to the five hundred and first company or the two thousand and first company on the Russell two thousand and say, here we'll give you a bunch of money to increase your sales, so you get into the index because we know once you get into the index, you know you get cheaper cost of capital. So it's almost like every time people criticize the market for not being efficient, 
my question is just, okay, for how long will it not be efficient, right? Um, so, so that's like my simple kind of answer, but yeah, it makes sense. Like if it's 50-50, you're completely right that it's not a problem because the 50% that are not passive investors will probably more than make up for, um, you know, the mispriced, um, mispriced equities. Now, the thing is, if it becomes 90-10 because of lower trading fees, uh, then, then it could become a problem just because like there wouldn't be enough capital to like arbitrage those things away. The pushback on that is that if trades are free and we know that more and more platforms are moving into, uh, trades being free, then you can probably, you know, that the capital isn't, isn't that much of a problem. Cause like, you can just like, you know, do algorithms that do high frequency trading to exploit that even with small uh, amounts of capital. Um, do you have any thoughts on on that? Yeah, I mean, I would just say, I, again, I think that we're not at a point where it's a huge problem yet. But like you said, if we get to 90-10, then I think that, I don't know if there'll be regulatory intervention or what, but I think something would have to give because at the end of the day, you can't have just 10% of all the dollars in the market deciding the prices for 100% of the market. So we'll see what happens. And another thing I would say is that passive investing is really you know, not completely passive in nature because there is no fund out there that owns the entire global market portfolio. Instead, I would say a better way to describe most passive investing strategies is not really passive, but more rules-based. Market capitalization-weighted index funds are making a very active bet on large stocks. So there are many you know, different ways to define passive investing. And passive investing in many senses is not as passive as its name might imply. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Um, do you have any thoughts on like the global macro environment now that we're seeing, like with all the money that has been printed, um, with all the like big advantage that tech companies uh, get over, for example, small retail companies that that are shutting down with coronavirus? Like any thoughts on how this impacts uh, investing behaviors you see on the platform? Yeah, I mean, in terms of actual behavior, we we actually we're big believers in privacy, so we don't actually track what people are doing on our uh, on our platform too too much because we think that that's kind of up to them, and uh, you know we really believe in having walls around user activity in terms of privacy. So, uh, to the extent we need to look at certain things to run the business, we do. But to the extent that we would monitor people's investing behaviors just out of curiosity or what have you, that's not really something we do. In terms of the economic backdrop, I would say. The defining thing right now that everyone is watching is unsurprisingly the coronavirus pandemic. And what what's going to happen with that going forward depends on a lot of things, including the vaccination schedule and, and lots of other things. But one, there's a couple things that I think a, a lot of people in finance would agree on. And the first is that there's probably going to be a lot of inflation, at least if this follows um, you know, the trends of other historical financial events. And the reason why that is, is just because so many of the governments have printed so much money to fund stimulus programs or relief pro- programs. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be very inflationary if it follows historical patterns. And that because of that, you've seen investors rush to asset classes that have historically performed well in inflationary periods. So uh, Bitcoin is one example, although this would be the first inflationary period that it's really experienced. Uh, gold is another one. Real estate, all, all those kinds of real assets, hard assets are, uh, you know, kind of being bought up by investors in big quantities right now because of fears of inflation. The other thing that I think everyone's watching is interest rates. We've seen negative interest rates policies in many countries around the world, especially in Europe. 
And that is not something that most investors are used to. You can get mortgages right now with negative interest rates in Sweden and in Germany and in all these European countries. And that is just not something that many investors can really understand. It's not intuitive. It's nothing, not like anything we've ever seen before. So I would say inflation and interest rates are the two things that every investor is watching right now. Yeah, for sure. The negative interest rates are just fascinating because like you've had negative interest rates in real terms for a very long time, but like having a negative interest rate in nominal terms, that's, it just must feel so weird. Like I understand kind of the, um, I just was listening to a podcast yesterday on, on like why this happens uh, and why people are willing to invest like in, you know, bonds that pay your negative interest rate as opposed to just keeping the money in currency. And it's because like it basically neutralizes the risk of any particular bank failing. Uh, although sometimes banks even will charge you to keep deposits on the in the bank, but like I, from what I understand, that's a, a, a low percentage compared to the negative interest rate bonds that people are buying. So then you should ask, like, why would you buy a bond that pays you less? Um, and so th there's like two reasons. One is like you believe that the interest rate will go even more negative, so you'll make money on the like price of the bond. And then the other idea is like, okay, if you keep your money in one bank even if it doesn't charge you anything, let's say Deutsche Bank, but like if Deutsche Bank fails, you're really screwed. So as a corporation, you prefer to pay the negative interest rate almost as like a, you know, an insurance policy against one particular bank failing. Uh, we'll see how, how much they can push that. that. That would be very, very interesting. I don't think they can raise interest rates, but we'll see how far they can push uh, either negative interest rates or just like in the US, they're talking about yield curve control. So they're basically saying, no matter what happens, we'll make sure the interest rate doesn't go up, which is kind of crazy to me. They've never said it before. Um, so yeah, very, very fascinating times we're living through. Uh, then another question, you mentioned Bitcoin. Do you have any thoughts on like, what's like a better store of value against inflation, Bitcoin versus the stock market? Because you could make the case that both are good in different ways. The stock market, you know, the more money the government prints the and the lower the interest rate, the stock prices will go up because like that money will go in revenue. And also the discount rate of that revenue will be low because the um, discount rate is the interest rate, basically. But Bitcoin, we've seen it's outperformed the stock market. So do you have any thoughts of Bitcoin versus stocks as, as uh, protection against inflation? I think many people who are Bitcoin bugs use the argument that it's going to be a store of value. And I think that you only have to look at that price chart for about five seconds to realize that's just not the case. You can't have this something that fluctuates many percent every day and say that it's a store of value, not like something like the US dollar is. So the store of value argument for Bitcoin for me just like doesn't really sell. I think if you want a good store of value for inflation protection, you should probably seek out, you know, stocks or real estate. Historically, they've done fairly well in inflationary periods, especially if you can get exposure to businesses with pricing power that can raise their prices above the, the cost of inflation, I guess, or the, the rate of inflation. Yeah, that's a very good point about the pricing power. I think not many people are talking about or not enough people are talking about this, which is basically it's all about like the what cost structure do you have, right? Like if most of your costs are like fixed costs, like think of Facebook, for example, right? They have like a lot of costs, but many of them are fixed that they don't scale with their usage. So, you know, th their usage can go 2x and the cost wouldn't go up 2x uh, versus, for example, uh, a food company. Uh, you know, if, if they want to sell double the amount of food, 
their costs will also go up by a lot. And so probably Facebook has more pricing power uh, in light of inflation uh, compared to a food company. So I think that's very smart. Basically, you want to expose yourself to companies with more pricing power. Do you have any ideas of, of which sectors that might be beyond tech? Ah, I was going to say business to business SaaS companies, but that is obviously right in the smack middle of the technology world. So um, besides tech, I would say anything where there's a really valuable brand. I mean, if you think about Coca-Cola, I mean, I go to Costco and there's Coca-Cola for a flat on for like, I don't know, probably $24.99 here. And you can get the no-name version of Coca-Cola for probably $16.99. But people always buy the Coca-Cola because it's the brand they know, it's the brand they love. So if you have something with pricing power that people love, I think your ability to raise prices is much better than something that tries to compete on utility or on cost or on any other of the kind of competitive levers you can pull when you're running a business. Yeah, I think that's very good, uh, a very good lens uh, to look through. Uh, and, and also, I think, you know, you have like the Big Mac index, which is like a way to look at purchasing power of different currencies. And I think the reason why the Big Mac index uh, basically, for, for listeners who don't know what the Big Mac index is, it's like a, a research tool that people use to say, okay, how much does the Big Mac cost in different countries? And based on that, we can determine like what's the real exchange rate between the two currencies. Uh, I think the reason why that works is because McDonald's has a very good global brand and people are actually willing to pay um, a premium for a Big Mac versus like a normal burger that is made somewhere. So, so that's a very interesting lens. And in terms of Bitcoin, my thoughts are like, yeah, it's definitely not a store of value today. I think basically the way to treat Bitcoin is like, it's a startup, like a, you know, a series D or E startup that uh, has technology that could become a store of value one day. And like, if it becomes a store of value, it would probably be worth I don't know if it takes over the price of gold, it's like 500,000 per Bitcoin. If uh, you believe that it will grow more than that, it could be a million dollars per Bitcoin. And and by then it would be much uh, less volatile. Even it's very fascinating to look at this cycle uh, where Bitcoin is definitely less volatile on the way up uh, compared to 2017. So, but yeah, definitely the the volatility is much higher than something like the stock market. yeah, uh, very, very cool. Any other um, thoughts, any other closing thoughts or questions you have for me or something you would like to discuss? I guess I'd just say about Passive, if you guys want to try out our software, just check us out at Passive.com. That's P-A-S-S-I-V.com. There's no E on the end of Passive. And if you'd like a demo of the software or if you have any questions, just email me. My email is nick.mccullum at Passive.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nick. And I, I really, I loved uh, the product, especially because like, yeah, it allows you to build your own kind of ETF or, or build your own exposure and express your thesis in a way where you don't have to worry about it uh, to rebalance. Um, so big believer in that. So yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, and to our listeners, thanks so much for uh, listening. Please hit us up with questions uh, you might have or ideas. Uh, we're always happy to hear them. Uh, So thanks so much again, Nick. Great uh, chatting. Yeah, thanks again for having me.